I had a student once who was a newer-ish to our youth group and you know, kind of did what you do with the students. You try and get to know them, try to see what they're about. And I remember asking him, hey man, uh, what are you into? What do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do outside of church and school? And the student replied, I, I love movies. And I love movies too. So I thought, cool, we're gonna talk movies. I love talking about movies. And I asked him what kind of movies he likes. And he says, I love anything with Tom Hanks. And yeah, not a lot, it's kind of funny. Not a lot of high school students are like, yeah, my favorite actor is Tom Hanks, right? <laughs> um, and so we start talking about movies. I'm like, hey, do you remember that scene in Saving Private Ryan? Do you remember that scene in Forrest Gump or Apollo 13? Uh, or, you know, just naming Tom Hanks movies. And uh, he kept going kind of like, oh, I, I don't remember that part. Oh, no, no, I don't really remember that part. I don't really remember that part. And eventually what I figured out was that he eventually told me, you know, I haven't seen actually a lot of his movies. <laughs> Favorite actor is Tom Hanks. But I've seen a lot of his clips on YouTube. <laughs> so... So through YouTube, he deduced that Tom Hanks was his favorite actor. And I, you know, that's, that's just, that's just kind of Gen Z. They, they absorb media in shorter chunks. That's kind of what's fun about them. Um, and you know, I, I, I will say, though, I, I think that sometimes we approach the Bible that way. We approach the Bible with a perspective of we're very familiar with the stories. We're very familiar with these classic stories and tales that we've, especially if we've grown up in church, you know, we're used to, we, we remember the flannel graph, for those of you who can remember flannel graph, right? And we just kind of make a lot of assumptions based on that. And I, I think an, an example of that is in children's Bibles. Now, I, I want to be clear. I have nothing against children's Bibles. We have a children's Bible. This is the one we use for my son, August. Um, it's by Phil Vischer, who created VeggieTales. He also voiced Bob the Tomato. I like this one because it weaves the whole story of scripture into kind of like one overarching story. But, um, you know, children's Bibles are meant to simplify things so that students, so that young children can become familiar with scripture. But eventually, as we get older and our understanding and our ability to reason and uh, have like to reason things out and understand things grows, we kind of have to wrestle with scripture and all of its difficulties and trickiness. And one of these difficult places is in the book of Jonah. Uh, I'll, I won't read the whole thing, uh, but if this is what Jonah looks like in my son's children's Bible, right? <laughs> you can just a few quick things, right? Jonah is being swallowed by a whale. It, it's a, it, there's no mention of a whale in the actual book of Jonah. It calls city, the city that he's called to, a big, mean city, Nineveh, and God's telling them, stop being so mean, right? Uh, it talks about when Jonah splits, when Jonah uh, is, when Jonah says he's sorry, that it's all his fault, that he avoided God's call to Nineveh, that, you know, this, the whale burps out Jonah, and it says, pluey, Right? So it's, it's all simple things for us to kind of, for children to latch onto so they become familiar with the text. But one of the cool things about Jonah, and I really, really came to really appreciate this book after I was in seminary and I took a course where we were translating the entire book of Jonah, is that it's really kind of like, uh, it's, if you can understand the book of Jonah, you can really understand kind of the whole Old Testament. The book of Jonah encompasses so many different genres. It has narrative, it has prophetic genre, it has poetry also. And so in understanding kind of the nuances of Jonah, we actually start to understand how God is uh, communicating about himself in the rest of the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, go to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to take a kind of uh, panoramic overhead view 
of the book of Jonah. We're going to kind of fly through it. So it might be, we might be moving kind of, we're covering a lot in a short amount of time, but just try and, you know, bear with me, stick with me here. Now, Jonah is a prophetic book. It's one of the 12 prophetic books in the Bible, but it's primarily a narrative. It's primarily a story. Prophetic books are mostly known for their prophetic speeches and oracles. Think about the book of Isaiah, right? Unto us a child is born. These prophecies about the coming Messiah. But Jonah is slightly different in that it's predominantly narrative. So we're going to be following and tracing a story today. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is like the classic introduction to Jonah. God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah says no and flees. But there's some things that maybe we should pick out here. Nineveh is the one is the a great city of one of Israel's greatest enemies, the Assyrians. And God describes the city not as mean, like the children's Bible does. It describes it as great evil, as a city of great evil. And Jonah is being called to proclaim against Nineveh and their great evil. So he is called to the place of one of Israel's greatest enemies and call out the evil within the city, right? And this is a difficult call. This is a scary call. Nineveh was known for its great violence, both within the city and then also within warfare as well. So this is a scary, this is a difficult call for any one person to take. But the thing is, is that the difficulty of Jonah's call is not an excuse for him to disobey the call. The difficulty of Jonah's call is not an excuse for him to disobey the call because all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, God calls his people to sometimes do difficult things. Recall maybe the story, some of the stories. I'm going to go through some examples here, but Abram and Sarai, who later become Abraham and Sarah. Abram and Sarai are called to leave the land of their fathers, to go into a land that God has promised them, right? So that they can be a blessing to a world. Some of you have immigrant stories in your own background and know how hard those stories are. Imagine doing that pre-technology. When you left, you were truly leaving a place. Uh, maybe sometimes the calling is both physical and emotional, like in the book of Ruth, where... Uh, the woman, uh, a woman by the name of Naomi, she loses her husband, loses her two sons, and her daughter-in-law, that who is a Moabite, says to Naomi, "I will travel back with you to Bethlehem and accompany you because you have no one. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God." And through Ruth's bravery into something difficult, God does something great. Even the exile, which is one of the greatest tragedies in all of Israel. It's, Israel is essentially plucked out of, the land, out of their promised land, the southern kingdom Judah, Judah, into the land of Babylon. And it seems like the Abrahamic blessings of the land are gone. The Davidic blessings of the monarchy are gone. And they're thinking, what are we going to do? And God, even when they're in the midst of exile, and it seems like they've lost everything, says... 
seek the shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile. They are still called to seek the shalom of the people who pulled them out of their land and placed them somewhere else. God's callings, while difficult, are never an excuse for disobedience. And by the way, God gives us space to acknowledge and recognize that sometimes callings can be difficult. This is all over the prophetic genre of books. Moses, who's the original prophet, he's kind of the OG prophet, uh, prophet par excellence if you want to get uh, technical and fancy seminary. Um, When God calls him through the burning bush, Moses says, don't do this. (laughs) He says, don't send me, send my brother, I'm not very eloquent. I stutter. I mumble. Don't send me. And God tells him, hey, Noah, who made your mouth? Don't say you stutter or mumble. I made your mouth, and you're going to use that mouth to call my people out of Egypt. Isaiah, when he catches a vision of God in Isaiah 6, God says, who is going to go forth, proclaim my glory, my truth to people who are not going to listen. That's essentially the call of Isaiah. You're going to proclaim God's truth. People aren't going to listen. Their hearts are going to harden. Their ears are going to go deaf, but you are going to proclaim my truth to them. And Isaiah goes, here I am, send me. It's a difficult call. Jeremiah in chapter one, when God calls him to be a prophet, the word of the Lord comes to him. Jeremiah then goes, don't send me. I'm too young. And God doesn't go, you're right, Jeremiah. You're too young. Don't worry about it. You're right. Let's, let's get someone a little more seasoned and experienced. No, God says, don't say you're too young. <laughs> God says, don't say you're too young. I've called you to do this. Hosea as well. After uh, God calls him to marry an adulterous woman, so that Gomer, so that their life can be a living example of God's own grace and compassion and love for unfaithful Israel. Elijah as well, after he has this encounter with the prophets of Baal, he becomes despondent because he has to flee. Even after the great high and success of his calling, he is wrestling with his calling. God always gives room for us to wrestle. God always gives room for us to struggle, to wrestle with the difficulty of a calling. But do you know what the key difference between Jonah and the other prophets are? is that while they may grumble, protest, argue, say, please, find someone else, they still do it. At the end of the day, they still do it. So we, the, so the, the disobedient, ah, sorry, the difficulty of a call is never excuse to disobey the call. Well, you know how the rest of the story then progresses, right? God hurls a mighty wind to catch Jonah's attention because he's fleeing on a boat, and the boat starts to even, they think it start, the sailors start to think that it's going to break up, and the sailors are becoming fearful. And it takes a lot for a sailor to become fearful in a storm. Correct? This must be a serious storm, especially if God is the one sending it. And remember, he's sending this storm to catch Jonah's attention because Jonah has fled. Right? And so all of the men, if we, we pick up in verse 6, all of the men, we pick up here in, uh, or sorry, verse 5, they're throwing cargo over, and they're crying out to their God. They're, thro- they're throwing cargo. This is a normal response. And while we don't condone necessarily the fact that they're praying to different gods, 
we can acknowledge that this is a very logical response, can we not? If God is hurling a storm and you think your ship is about to break up, what are you probably going to do in that scenario? You're going to pray to whatever God you believe in and do everything you can to keep that ship afloat. But what is Jonah doing? Remember, this wind was sent on his account. He's laying down fast asleep. The pagan Gentile sailors are responding to God trying to grab Jonah's attention, and yet the prophet who has fled from his presence is sleeping. And this isn't like a pe- sleeping like, you know, I I'm I'm, have such peace in this storm that I'm sleeping. Jonah is ignoring what God is trying to do. And it gets to the point where the captain in verse 6, he, he wakes Jonah up. He goes down and he says, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. The Gentile pagan captain of the ship is grabbing God's prophet and telling him, go pray to your God right now. Why aren't you praying and calling out to your God? Don't you see what's happening to us? Don't you see that our lives are at stake? Things are kind of backwards here. Eventually, the sailors, they all cast lots. And once again, this is not a This is not sort of condoning the practice of casting lots, trying to divine God's will. Like, hey, let's just flip a coin and decide what God's will is. But God uses this circumstance in this way to basically point out that when the lot falls on Jonah, that the sailors now know that Jonah is the one who caused the storm. So they ask him naturally, hey, who are you? What did you do to make this happen? And Jonah says this in verse 9. He says... Verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And you would think the sailors maybe would be comforted by a statement like that. Oh, you worship the one true God? But look at the content of what, notice their reaction, verse 10. The men became extremely afraid, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Break down Jonah's statement really quick. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. This is most likely referring to not heaven, the place where God dwells, but heavens as in the skies above, right? Who made the sea and the dry land. And Jonah has explained to them, yes, God called me to do something. The God who uh, is over the heavens above, who created the sea and dry land, and I tried to escape from him on a boat, I worship the God of the whole natural created order, and I try to flee from him on a boat. And so naturally, the sailors, they hear this and they go, why would you do this? How could you do this to us? If you worship a God who has mastery over the elements, over creation, why would you try to flee from him in the water? Why would you do this? It's, the sailors are just completely baffled by this. You would think that they're so angry that they would want to, like, kill him or do something. But instead, what they do is they they try to row back. They try to preserve his life, actually. Jonah tells them, hey, throw me overboard and the storm will stop. But they actually don't want to do this. They want to save and help Jonah. They're showing grace and compassion to Jonah, doing everything they can to row back. But the storm is too strong. And it gets to the point then in verse 14, because they cannot fight the elements, because God's will will not be stopped here in verse 14. They, the sailors, called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, 
Do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood, O Lord. You, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors show great compassion and care for Jonah's life. They want to preserve his life. So much so that when they finally bend to Jonah's request to throw him overboard, they pray to God, God, please forgive us. Even though Jonah has endangered their own lives, the sailors are showing compassion. The, remember, pagan Gentile sailors are showing compassion for God's own prophet. And it ends with them making sacrifices and vows. And the name of God that they use, uh, if you notice your Bible might have all capital letters for Lord, that's the divine name of Yahweh. Through this interaction with this disobedient prophet, the Gentile pagan sailors now know who the one true God is. Their repentance is clear. But we get to chapter 2 and we see that uh, jo Jonah chapter 2 is basically where Jonah begins to pray the Psalms. He's quoting a bunch of different Psalms to God. And we could spend a lot of time analyzing how Jonah is praying the Psalms, but I, I just want to kind of point out uh, a couple of things here. But Jonah, we won't go through it in super great depth, but Jonah is praying Psalms of uh, God's faithfulness to Israel, how God defends Israel from her enemies. Jonah is praying psalms of thanksgiving. Jonah is praying psalms of lament, where, you know, you go through a different season and circumstance and you cry out to God. And so he's praying psalms of lament as well. What Jonah does not pray, though, is he does not pray any psalms of repentance. Remember, Jonah, this whole situation started because Jonah disobeyed his difficult call. And yet there's no recognition of his actions. There's no contrition. There's no remorse on Jonah's end. And I want us to look at chapter 117 and 210 because that's sort of the narr narrative parts of this, of this section where we get to see God's perspective on Jonah. The Lord appointed, he appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And that word for swallow is the same word for swallow that is used in the Pentateuch when God uses basically the ground to swallow up a group of rebels in Moses' camp, right? So that's ominous. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then he prays his psalm, prayer of Psalms. And we get to verse 10 in chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, the fish he had anointed, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now the Hebrew word for vomit, do you know what it means? It means to vomit. <laughs> yeah, God is, God could have, we could have said, God spit out, the fish spit out. It plopped Jonah back onto the land. It said, pluey, like Phil Vischer does, right? Um, God hears Jonah's prayer of Psalms, quoting scripture. Quoting scripture that makes him seem like the victim. Quoting scripture in a way that doesn't mention his repentance or remorse for his actions. And the fish that he has appointed vomits him back onto the dry land. Right. In comparison to the sailors, 
who made sacrifices, who prayed to God to have mercy on them so clearly. How does Jonah's repentance look right now? Not so great, but we still have about half a book left to go. Jonah ends up back on dry land, and he ends up, actually ends up back nearby Nineveh, right? Back at the starting point. And we should pick up in chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So God is saying, okay, we're going to do this again. <laughs> saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. So Nineveh, to walk through all of Nineveh, it takes about three days. Jonah goes about one day. And he cried out and said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Earlier I talked about the prophetic genre and how prophetic books in the Bible are known for their great prophetic speeches where they proclaim God's truth. It's God's prophet proclaiming God's truth to the people. That is the role of a prophet in the Old Testament. Right? And Jonah has the shortest prophetic speech in all of Scripture. Right? And if you look at, you know, just even what the narrator saying, it takes three days to get through Nineveh. Jonah goes one day into the city. It's, the, the equivalent is kind of like watching YouTube clips of a Tom Hanks movie instead of watching a full Tom Hanks movie. Right? Jonah goes one day instead of three days, and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The prophets do proclaim judgment. They do proclaim God's wrath at times. But it is always accompanied with the hope of repentance. The news of judgment is always accompanied by good news of grace and restoration and reconciliation back to God. And Jonah's speech has no hope. He states it as though it's fact. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And that's it. Yet somehow, even with this incomplete prophetic speech, God moves. We pick up in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Men, women, children, even animals. But to put on sackcloth and to fast is to show deep remorse and grief and contrition for one's actions. And the word even reaches the king. And the narrator is very intentional about that, that the word now has to come a third time, and it comes to the king of Nineveh because God's prophet did not complete his speech. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne. He laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat on ashes, and he issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. It is a fast not even for uh, men and women and adults, not even just for children and young ones, even their animals are going to be fasting. Like, imagine the depth of your repentance being so deep that, like, okay, our, my pet dog, Rocky, today, he's going to fast and wear sackcloth and ashes too. That is the depth of repentance that Nineveh is showing right now. The King's Oracle continues. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let 
men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The good news of repentance is spoken not through God's prophet, but through the king of Nineveh. When God saw their deeds in verse 10, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You know, I, I work with students. I've worked with students for quite a while. Uh, I started actually around Super Bowl Sunday, uh, about in 2015, almost nine years ago, as a youth pastor at a really small Korean-American church. It was like 100 people total if you combine the Korean-English like children's youth ministries. Really small Korean church. Some of you guys have been in churches like that. Uh, I, was, I worked with like a youth outreach program, the one that we worked with, uh, with that I took our students to in Chicago, Illinois. So the majority of my ministry has been with youth and students. And one of the things that I see often when people talk about the youth of today is they talk about them from a place of fear about the various ideologies that are kind of, that they're confronted with on a day-to-day basis. And it's true, there are a lot of ideologies, especially just, you know, with social media, like students can access anything at any time and just have a sort of, uh, like, fire hose of information blasted at them on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, and, and and I always tell our students also, like, Please, please, please don't get your theology from TikTok. <laughs> like, please don't get your theology from TikTok. Um, but what I find is actually one of the biggest harms and detriments and sort of uh, barriers for young people to understand the gospel is not necessarily different people groups, different ideologies. The biggest barrier for young Christians, young people, and by the way, these young people, they're not just the future church. They are the church right now. They're part of our church. The biggest hurdle for them when it comes to Christianity is not seeing that Christianity is good, not seeing from other Christians the grace and compassion of God being lived out. And yes, when it comes to learning about God and truth and the and just essential Christian doctrine, and trust me, I, th- that, that stuff is very, very, very important to me. But if it's not accompanied by the good news of the gospel, and it's, if it's not shown to them as well, it falls flat every single time. One of the reasons I like Jonah so much or, or have come to appreciate Jonah so much is just how much I can kind of relate to it. Uh, I, I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. It was about eight years of my life studying the Bible. And for a long time, I think I believed that I could improve my relationship with God by just knowing no, and more and more and more about him. But I remember a pastor, actually, he spoke uh, when I was back in Chicago. He said this, you know, one of the least impressive things you can do for God, one of the least impressive things you can do for God is know a lot about God and not show any of his goodness in your life. And that was something that has always stuck with me. And it's not something I do perfectly. Trust me, I, I have been the recipient of much grace at this church. Some of you guys are nodding like, yeah, Kevin, we know. <laughs> but... Because of that grace, it has allowed me to grow and learn and grow deeper in my walk with God. 
And if we're not presenting good news to young people, we may in fact actually lose them to the very things that we're afraid of. All of the evidence against Jonah so far has kind of been circumstantial. Traveling one day instead of three days, a prayer that has uh, no mention of repentance, you know, pagan Gentile sailors who show repentance greater than him, right? The disobedience of his call. But we don't actually have to just only use circumstantial evidence. We see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, exactly where Jonah's heart is. God relents upon pouring out disaster upon the Ninevites, and Jonah says this, it greatly displeased Jonah, God's forgiveness of the Ninevites, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah says, the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh was not because I was afraid of Nineveh. The reason I wanted to be thrown off of that ship was not to stop the storm. The reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh and I wanted the sailors to throw me overboard was because I knew, God, that you are gracious, you are compassionate, you are slow to anger, you are abundant in loving kindness, and if they repented, they would not have had calamity visited upon them. Jonah would rather be known for what he is against than to have the good news of who God is presented to the Ninevites. The passage that Jonah is quoting is actually, he's actually quoting scripture here. It's Exodus 34, uh, verse 6. And uh, it occurs at Sinai, when, after God has freed the Israelites from Egypt. And it is actually God describing himself. God is describing his own character to the Israelites. And this is so important to the Israelites uh, that it actually becomes a passage that they quote over and over and over again. It becomes a confessional, essentially, for the Israelites. This is Exodus 34 is essentially like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament in a way, a God describing his character. And he's saying, God, I knew, and Jonah repeats this confession. He knows this confession. He's, a, he's an Israelite prophet. Of course he knows his confession. I knew you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And he says, because of this, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because I know who you are. Your grace and compassion is meant for us, not for them. Jonah has taken his identity as one of God's chosen people and made it essentially an identity of exceptionalism. No, God, our grace, your grace and compassion, it's for us. It's for us, not for them. If we only present a gospel to young people that is known more for what it's against 
than for the good, flourishing life that Jesus wants to call them to, then that, once again, that message will fall flat every single time. The book of Jonah ends with God asking a question because scripture is a teaching book, right? So we as the readers are forced to then look and examine ourselves. So we get to verse 11, or chapter, verse 10. The Lord says, uh, Jonah and God, they have this sort of exchange where God gives him a plant of shade, and then he sends a worm that then eats the plant away, and then Jonah just gets really mad because his special plant is now gone. Um, so verse 10 we pick up. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? That's how the story of Jonah ends. We're not supposed to ask the question of, well, what about Jonah? We're supposed to now ask the question of ourselves. Do I see grace and compassion as something that's only for me? Or do I see God's grace and compassion as something to be shared with other people? Am I supposed to see God's grace and compassion shared even with the people who are most difficult to love, like the Ninevites? Or do I just see grace and compassion as something that's meant to be for me? That's the question God wants us to wrestle with today. Um, you know, I, I love Gen Z. I, I, know, I know Gen Z is, some of you guys are parents or grandparents of Gen Z, and you're just kind of like, oh man, Gen Z. <laughs> some of you guys are, you know, I've been a youth pastor for a little bit now, and so I've been around Gen Z a lot, and now some of my friends have Gen Z coworkers <laughs> that they're kind of like, oh man, Gen Z is in college, in the workforce. I don't know what to do with, they use words like bussin a lot of the times. I don't know what that means, um, right? But, you know, what I love about Gen Z is that they want to see a gospel that is good. When you look at Gen Z, that is a period of basically late 2000, or, 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 sorry, late 90s, early 2000s to about 2012 or so. And you think about what they as a generation, right, the whole, the whole kind of generation have kind of gone through and experienced. It, it, it seems pretty, like, it seems like a lot when you think about it. Uh, 9-11, right? 08 housing crash, global pandemic, uh, racial injustice and unrest, uh, just doom scrolling on their phones and social media and all the effects that's had on them as well. And what they want to see, what I believe the church is calling, what God is calling us to is the power of God's grace and compassion. That's what they want to see, and that's what they hunger for today. And that's what God is calling us to do today. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you that you are a God of grace and compassion, that you are a God who doesn't just look at our shortcomings and failures, Lord, but you earnestly want us to be in a relationship with you, Lord. But I pray it wouldn't just be a one-way relationship where we just receive. I pray that this would be a relationship where we partner with you and love on the people that are most difficult to love so that we can be instruments of your grace and compassion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.